Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm not just writing history. I am making it. I have the brain of a historian and the clapback of a comedian. You better come with sources because I always check footnotes. Hello, welcome to Historians on Housewives. Thanks for joining us for another episode. You're here with me, Casey. Dr. Jane Mill, the millionaires. Max Spear. Jessica, lend me a dollar, please. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're going to talk to Catherine Kunar, who is about to finish her PhD um, with a project all about the history of... Hershey um, chocolate in the United States, um, consumption, food, capitalism. It's fabulous. And so I thought to set us up, we could talk about our favorite chocolate. Now, for me, I did not like chocolate growing up. I really wasn't a big chocolate person until I was pregnant, and now I can't stop eating it. I need it all the time. It's been my big, big craving. Um, before my favorite chocolate would have just been like the chocolate in the river from like the Gene Wilder, Willy Wonka. That was like always magical to me, but I didn't actually like want to eat the chocolate. I just wanted to look at it. Augustus Gloop is a hero of yours. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's like that combination of like whimsical and like creepy and I don't know. I just, I loved the chocolate river. Who doesn't want to be creeped out while they eat chocolate? Well, so I never really was a chocolate person. I just liked that part of chocolate but now like I'm really into chocolate milk right now I don't know if that will change when the baby comes but like I have to have a chocolate milk every day what about you Jessica so Hershey's is not necessarily my favorite chocolate we've talked about kind of the aftertaste um I have to say that my favorite chocolate and no one has heard of it unless you live in Maryland it's Wackenfuss chocolates there is a store in Bel Air, Maryland. There's a store in the Columbia Mall. And there's a store in Ocean City. This is the smoothest chocolate you will ever taste. Ooh. And they're particularly known for their almond bark, like just chocolate over almonds. Ooh, and that it's sounds just, good. And it's just smooth. It's not too sweet. They have it in um, uh, dark chocolate and milk chocolate. You can order it online. Trust me, you'll be very pleased with this. That does sound good. I like ch- 
I don't have a specific brand of chocolate that I like, um, but I do like the way that Godiva or Seas Candy makes chocolate into like a little ball, and then you have um, like a filling inside. A little a truffle. truffle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a third intro, folks? <laughs> Give us a break. <laughs> that could um, be the end. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so you, you like, like, you like truffles. truffles? Yeah, yeah, I like truffles. A little, like, a little bit of fruit jelly inside. Absolutely delicious. Dark chocolate, too. I used to like uh, Reese's, but it became a little too, um, I don't know, the peanut butter started getting to me. Not like you, though. You really don't like chocolate and peanut butter. I feel like it's because I, I, I really don't like chocolate and peanut butter, so maybe your Reese's yeah. consumption went down. But I, I love chocolate with marshmallow. This is crazy talk that you don't like chocolate with peanut butter. First of all, chocolate, if you're a chocolate person, will go with anything. Yep. But see, that's the thing. I'm not traditionally a chocolate person. You are now. You're I having have, chocolate milk every single day. But I don't know if it will stay when I'm not pregnant anymore. Would you try chocolate with peanut butter now? No. While you're pregnant? Why not? It sounds awful. Do you like peanut butter? With apples. Okay, I like peanut butter with apples, but it's so much better with chocolate. <laughs> or like, or like a peanut butter and jelly, but the jelly has to be specific. I'm like a boysenberry blackberry. Academics are so particular about their food. <laughs> not, they're not normal. You know, normal people are particular about food, but academics in particular, we have such little happiness in our lives that that little boysenberry <laughs> jelly. <laughs> All right, so let me give you the background on Catherine Kunar. Catherine Kunar is a PhD candidate in history at the University of Toronto. I was going to say the University of Toronto is gorgeous, and I really love their library. Did you go there for the Burks? Is that yeah, yeah. the Burks? It was fantastic. It, yeah, yeah, they they the University of Toronto hosted an amazing Burks years ago, and I I still think about the beauty of this campus. Mm-hmm. So her dissertation traces the history of the Hershey Chocolate Company. She is broadly focused on American capitalism, mass consumption, and food history. Her project investigates the history of U.S. capitalism through the lens of the Hershey Company. She uses social and cultural history methodologies to show how ideas about the nature of chocolate as a joyful rather than a necessary commodity shaped the company's identity. So with that, let's welcome Catherine Cunard to the podcast. Welcome, Catherine Kunar. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Hi, thank you for having me. Would you like to share your Real Housewives tagline with us? Sure. Um, I may study chocolate, but get on my bad side, and I am not so sweet. (laughs) That's a good one. I like it. That's a good one. (laughs) That's a very professional housewife. That's a really great tagline. (laughs) Well, yes. I tried to mimic the cadence of the housewives. <laughs> you did very well. <laughs> so typically we would ask about your reality TV Bravo history first, but I just felt like we couldn't do that today and we have to switch things up because we have to actually know how you ended up researching chocolate and the Hershey company and how your research may have impacted your chocolate consumption. <laughs> um. Well, I did my master's degree in history and African studies, and my thesis looked at child labor in colonial Ghana, and that research didn't look explicitly at the cocoa sector, but when I was doing a lot of reading, I came across some academic, but mostly 
journalistic material about more contemporary child labor in um, West African cocoa production. So that sort of led to reading about the Hershey Company. And I found its history to be just really interesting. And this was while I happened to be applying to doctoral programs. So I just came to the topic of Hershey that way. And that's also how I became an Americanist. In terms of my chocolate consumption, I don't know if it's changed it. I've always loved chocolate. And since I started working on Hershey, though, I'm always asked when I'm at conferences or meeting new people, um, what's your favorite chocolate? And usually there seems to be the implication that it couldn't possibly be Hershey's. Um, A lot of people don't consider it to be, quote unquote, good chocolate. And because I'm Canadian, I didn't really grow up eating Hershey's because it's kind of a, I don't know, second or third tier brand here. But I do love Reese's. That's my favorite Hershey's product. Um, What is considered top tier chocolate in Canada? I mean, I guess like top tier, like uh, national, like brands that you can get everywhere. Would I guess be like Cadbury? That's just more the style of chocolate that I think is seems to be popular in Canada, the more creamy um, uh, style. It has, there's different regulations like in the U.S. and in Canada and in um, Europe and the U.K. about how much cocoa solids have to be in chocolate. And so there's a lot less in American chocolate. So that's why it's sometimes uh, more like sugar forward, I guess, than, than milk forward. Oh, that's interesting. Sort of. So is that yeah. why, I mean, that would make sense. So since you said Ghana, you know, I'm looking for any reason to talk about Ghana. I just came back from Ghana and there is a chocolate oh. story. There's a chocolate story because someone offered me a Kit Kat and I wrinkled my nose and they said, <laughs> but it's American chocolate. I said, mm, tastes different over here, which it does, yeah, it does, right? Because these international regulations, that just makes total and complete sense. So Yeah, and it's also... Hershey's is actually has the license to make and distribute Kit Kat only in the United States. Everywhere else, it's Nestle. Oh wow! Wow! <laughs> wow. I don't even know what to do with that. Like I'm thinking about the bags that you put together at Halloween. I'm thinking about ads. Wow, that would make mm-hmm. sense too. I guess is Nestle American based? Um, well, for their chocolate with. Swiss, it's a Swiss company. I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure it's Swiss. Um, but in back uh, a few decades ago, they sold the rights to distribute and make um, just the Kit Kat brand to her, the Hershey company. And um, 2002, they joined with Cadbury to try to buy the Hershey company to sort of get back the, the rights to Kit Kat because Kit Kat's a really popular chocolate bar in the United States. Um, and yeah. This is fascinating. <laughs> this is all about colonialism and antitrust. And this is like a 19th century yeah. historian's dream. This is a great topic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I can already see so many overlaps with some of our Bravo people and stuff and stuff yeah so it's gonna be great so on that (laughs) note can you tell us a little bit about your personal history with reality tv and how you became a bravo demic sure um i don't i've never watched a lot of reality tv other than the housewives um 
But when I was in undergrad, I had a friend who watched The Real Housewives of New York. And so I started watching with her and it kind of turned into like a fun night with a few friends uh, every week. And then later I started watching a few other franchises. Um, and then before, like you could DVR things or watch them online. I would just see things here and there uh, when I was around. But uh, the things I've watched most consistently are New York, Orange County, and Vanderpump Rules, I think. But about a year ago, I started subscribing to Hey You, and so now I've been trying to catch up on older seasons, which is a lot of fun. What's but I don't he, think I really hey started. You? Oh, it's a uh, reality TV streaming service. It's very affordable, like half oh. the price of Netflix. And because I don't have cable. And is this Canadian-based? I think it's actually Australian-based, I think. I wish you could see our faces. Remember, right? (laughs) Do you get live TV? No, you don't get live TV. You get it the next day. So the the day after it aired, it's there. And they have all the old, and there's so much more than Housewives on it. Uh, I haven't really gone, like I've only had it for about a year and I haven't gone too deep, but there's a lot of stuff on, on it. I like looked through all of the titles and it's, it's pretty deep. And it's called Hey You. Yeah, H-A-Y-U, I think. We should say the Historians on Housewives is not an affiliate of Hey You, Kit Kat, or Hershey's <laughs> Chocolate, or Nestle. Yeah. or Nestle, nor have they paid us to do any advertising. But if they want to. <laughs> I, I feel like we're going to have to have almost like a count of how many times like you've like made our heads explode already and like, throughout the whole episode because... We're already like at least on number two, if not three, where we were like, what is going on? Oh my goodness. Our whole world just shifted a little bit. What is this? Hey, you, I need this in my life. <laughs> it's great. It really is great. Cause I used to be able to watch um, some on Slice, which is a Canadian network and they would have it for free online. Um, but they stopped, I guess they don't have the rights to do that anymore. That ended a while, like maybe two years ago. And then I found this service. I can't even remember how I came across it. Um, but it's been wonderful. It, it has some glitches. It's not, the, it's not a perfect streaming service, but it's pretty good. And it's definitely affordable. Um, so turning back to Bravo, um, yeah. <laughs> who would you pick as your top three Bravo celebrities and why? Oh, it, this was really hard, um, but because there's a lot of things I like about a lot of Bravo celebrities, but uh, Sonia Morgan is my favorite. She is really fun to watch. There was like a period where things were a little dark for her, um, but I find her really funny and silly, and I like that she can laugh at herself a lot of the time, which seems a little rare in, in Housewives, um, and uh, she just lives in her own little world, and it's I really like it. She also reminds me a bit of my mom, which I know, which seems weird, but it's it's the scenes where she's running around the townhouse and fixing things and asking interns questions and then on to the next thing before they even have a chance to answer her. And it's those like kind of frantic, scatterbrain side of Sonia that's very familiar to me. Sorry, mom. <laughs> So Sonia Morgan would be number one. What about number two? Mm-hmm. Number two is Stephanie Holman from Dallas. Um, I 
just really like her. There's something about her that seems like, um, like I could spend time with her, but if I had to spend a significant amount of time with a lot of the other housewives, I don't know. I might lose my mind. <laughs> um, and I like her friendship with Brandy. I think, uh, I don't, uh, I don't, there's a lot of housewives friendships that seem a little forced or contrived, but theirs seems pretty genuine and I like it. The interesting thing about Stephanie that I was actually really impressed with in this last season was when they went to Thailand and she just admitted, she goes, I didn't plan anything in this trip. I don't know what I'm doing here, (laughs) but my husband, Travis planned everything we're doing ladies. Right. And Mm -hmm. like just the fact that she did not try to claim that she planned it. Right. But then that Mm -hmm. Travis actually had planned a a fairly interesting (laughs) trip for them. It was a fairly interesting trip, but that also might've been as like to preempt in case it was a terrible trip. She didn't want to get yelled at. That's true, true, but I just, I just found that so interesting that she was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Travis planned it, you know, but but they've had like such a back and forth about when she wants to have more say and more control versus when she's like, I don't care, Travis, you take care of it, you know? And so Mm -hmm. I feel like we've really seen their relationship evolve a bit in front of the cameras over four years. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. The first season of Dallas, that was a relationship that seemed a little... Uh, troubling, but uh, but I like where it's gone. I I like them together. They seem it's, it's it's a cute relationship. They seem a lot more like partners now. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. Rather than you know this husband that shows up after like work and gets her list and, yeah, <laughs> and then leaves exactly, again. Yeah. So yeah, yeah there's been was, a lot of yeah. there's been a lot of I think transition in their relationship. Mm-hmm. Okay, so number three. Number three is Kate Chastain from Below Deck. Um, I love her commentary about what's happening on every charter. Um, I love her take on the rest of the crew. I like her sarcasm. Um, I really like Below Deck, and I hate that Kate's had a really rough time this season. Yeah. It's been a little hard to watch. It's been hard to watch. Yeah. I just feel like Bravo's going to need some HR cleanup. (laughs) Yeah. So, in like a, kind of like broad strokes, what can you say about the history of U.S. capitalism, consumption, and food based on your research about chocolate and the Hershey Company? Based on my research, um, it's, until the 1880s, there's not really a lot of brands, like especially food brands. And, um, you know, when people buy food, it, it doesn't really have a label on it. Um, they just go to a store or a market and buy what they need. But the rise of um, packaged goods in the late 19th and early 20th century uh, changes this. And it brings about the advent of, like, branded food products. And, and then we have – and that leads to the rise of competition among brands and necessitates the need for advertising in food um, and the industrialization of food production um, meant that more food and particularly shelf stable foods, things like Heinz and Campbell's and Quaker Oats um, are being marketed and sold nationwide. And this changes the way Americans eat, the way they shop and the way they think about food um, because more and more foods 
that people eat every day are coming in packages and they're being mass produced. And this rise of industrial food production also means that consumers uh, have questions and concerns about how that food's being made, um, which prompts large companies to produce carefully curated images of themselves, like of their founders as being um, charitable and benevolent of workers being clean and well cared for and um, production methods being um, also clean and sterile and technologically advanced. And many factories, including Hershey, start to open their doors to visitors as a way of showing the public that these products can be trusted. Um, and Hershey is the first company to mass produce solid milk chocolate for sale nationwide. Um, there's artisanal chocolate being produced and there's some that's being imported from um, Europe, but that's obviously more expensive. And what makes Hershey a little different and like sort of complicated in this story um, where we're seeing the, the advertisement of mass produced foods is that Hershey doesn't advertise its food in the same way. It really uses the town itself as, uh, as a way to actively promote the chocolate sort of almost secondarily at times. So it becomes a regional tourist destination. Um, and, but the price of chocolate is always kept really low. So it's always accessible to all classes of Americans, which, which allows it to spread um, across the country. And my work looks at how the Hershey Company changed as the role of workers and patterns of consumption changed over the course of the 20th century. Um, for example, the transformation of the town's tourist infrastructure in the 1970s uh, reflects changes in leisure and tourism and the kinds of uh, consumption related to travel and vacationing in the post-war years. So that's how I see it sort of related to all those things. So I'm, I'm going to have a 19th century instructor nerd moment. Um, Perfect. Casey was my TA, so she knows that I always wrestle with finding interesting things to teach when I teach the 19th century. When she teaches it, it's no problem. But I'm always trying to find interesting things because, you know, I am really actually an early Americanist. But this notion of like Hershey and was Hershey also like a um, company town and that they had boarding houses and the same things that you would see in other factory towns? Or am I getting too deep? <laughs> that's no, just a nerdy that's, question. Yeah, that's one of the things I was I was going to talk to you guys about um, in terms of like how how Milton Hershey himself is turned into a larger than life brand. Like I see as being inextricably linked to this, uh, the fact that Hershey, Pennsylvania was a company town. Um, and that has uh, a lot to do with how it spreads and its success. So he founded the company in the 1890s as an offshoot of a successful caramel company that he had. And then he sold that to focus exclusively on chocolate um, because he saw chocolate as a, a new market that didn't really have anyone in it who was making something affordable uh, that was mass produced. So in 1903, he built the industrial chocolate factory and then he establishes the town around 
the factory and the town is meant for workers to live. Um, and Hershey's part of what historians would refer to as the new company down movement. And all that means is that there's more corporate support for home ownership. We don't see these sort of like barracks that you would have seen in like early uh, or sorry, mid 19th century, late 19th century towns, uh, mining towns and things like that, um, or something like Pullman. Um, there's more focus on family, attracting families, amenities, green space. And but Milton Hershey and the Hershey Company still control the town, but it was aesthetically pleasing. Um, that's sort of the way that they designed it. Um, so there's still a great deal of paternalism and control. And so control over the image of the town is something that's really important. And another important aspect of this is the orphan school that, that they that he started. Milton Hershey's wife died young and they had no children. So he signed his wealth and his stake in the company over to this orphan school. And when that becomes public in, um, I think, 19, 19 or 20, somewhere around there, um, that becomes a really big part of his identity and the identity of the town. So he becomes this, like, really charitable uh, person and there's this idea that if you're buying Hershey you're contributing to this uh, this beautiful town and this orphan school where children are um, taken out of poverty to be trained in various trades and go on and live lives that never would have been possible without the the quote-unquote generous support of this you know chocolate Patriarch. It's great philanthropy, right? It's great philanthropy. Exactly. I mean, I'm going to have to have you lecture in my class because <laughs> this is fascinating. Um, so we have this really good discussion now about Milton Hershey as a larger than life sort of brand, turning himself into like a larger than life um, brand. And um, can you tell us more about about that and how it relates to the image created by people like Andy Cohen and housewives like Ramona, Bethany, and Vicky, who constantly get into fights about their brands and their sense of being sort of self-made, regardless of how true that notion is in their cases. Uh, I've sort of thought a little bit about um, like the Bravo universe as kind of a metaphoric company town and Andy Cohen as its founder and benefactor. And that comparison is kind of interesting to me. I haven't totally fleshed that out, but um, you know, Hershey was often described as as a family, especially by those that lived there, you know, between the 1920s and 1960s. And Bravo is always described that way too. And it, it's very, it can be very insular in the same way that a company town can be really insular. So I don't know. I Andy Cohen is is kind of like that that paternalist benefactor uh, to me. Um, but in I really love of, this metaphor. Yeah. I just want you to like <laughs> give us all of this metaphor. My my mind is just like, whoa, very cool. <laughs> um, well, I mean, first and foremost, the uh, Andy Cohen controls who's on the shows. Um, he's the executive producer, so um, you know he doesn't control everything that happens. But the he has a lot of say over. Um, storylines and um, what we see and what we don't see. And then through Watch What Happens Live, it's just sort of another element of promoting his brand, 
while also controlling um, how Bravo gets talked about because it's the, the primary outlet for people who are on Bravo to to come and, and talk about Bravo. Of course, they all have their own um, Twitter accounts and, and Instagram and things like that. But this is it's so just this very tight control around the product and the workers is just really reminds me of what it's actually like in in a company town um, like Hershey. I need to think about this comparison a little more, but I can, there's something there, I think. I dig it. <laughs> yeah, I think it's great. I mean, there's so many ways we can go with this. Um, I guess I, I want to hear a little bit more. We, we, we talked about this self-made man, right, or this larger-than-life man. But one of the things you do interrogate in your research is this myth of the self-made man. So mm-hmm. can you talk to us about um, the history of this concept in the United States and you also kind of alluded to it when you talked about Andy, but we're always up to hear more about how how maybe this concept um, can relate to Housewives or other Bravo shows. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, the idea of being self-made is has a really pretty long history in the United States. Um, I think the term actually dates from about the 1830s. Initially, it's used to describe people who were born into poverty or at least they were poor, maybe not fully impoverished, but, and then managed to become financially successful, politically powerful or some combination thereof. And without like all on their own, um, they're no longer dependent on others. And this notion privileges hard work over like inheritance or nepotism or other advantages that are seen as um, unfair. Uh, so the last several decades, this self-made term usually refers to success in business. Um, some housewives uh, seem particularly focused on the idea of being self-made. Others don't seem as concerned about it. Like someone like uh, like like Kyle Richards. Like maybe she'll talk about how successful Mauricio has become, but she doesn't fetishize it in the way that um, that someone like Ramona does, who seems to derive some kind of legitimacy from being from saying that she built whatever she has. Um, and you know how how true some of this is sort of up for debate. Um, but it doesn't seem to really matter how much money any of the women have. What really matters is like is how they got it. Um, and I, I think, this is because the concept of being self-made has been constructed as virtuous while other ways of uh, accumulating wealth, inheritance, marriage, et cetera, are seen as less honorable, um, which is kind of interesting to me. And I guess, you know, that um, infamous uh, Berkshire's weekend um, fight between Ramona and Bethany, where they argue about, who's who's made more of themselves and who had financial success and how they got it. And Ramona insists that, um, that she was wealthy before she even met Mario. Um, and she accuses Bethany of sleeping her way to the top rather than, um, than earning her financial success. And it's, it's just a very, uh, 
confusing fight. That argument to me in that context is just, it just shows how much these women who are both very wealthy women are just putting so much emphasis on the idea that they created it for themselves. And that's what's important. Well, and of course, this notion of like a self-made man, right, is also so contingent on various social conditions in the U.S. at the time, right, that mm-hmm. there's so much that goes in um, structurally to ha- even having the opportunity to be, quote, unquote, self-made, that it's such a slippery concept mm-hmm. in the first place in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, just Yeah. As- Sorry, go ahead, Catherine. No, no, you go ahead. Just a side note, because we like to be on top of everything on this podcast. I just literally pulled this meme up earlier today, and I think it might apply to some of these concepts of self-made people. The seven secrets of highly successful people, according to a post on Instagram. One, (laughs) private school. Two, Ivy legacy, legacy Ivy admission. Three, nepotism hire. Four, which is really kind of what the issue is here, seed capital from family or spouse, club memberships, uh, six is a personal assistant, a nanny, a ghostwriter, basically someone to help you achieve this illusion of being self-made. And then finally, and I don't get this part, so maybe you'll get the joke, journalists who ask, what is your secret? And then uncritically publish the answer. So I I guess that denotes that you have actually people Uh, asking. What does that mean? That you're being flattered by the press and that the press doesn't actually ask you hard questions, right? That's ah, what they're okay. suggesting. I knew it was sarcastic. I just didn't know on mm-hmm. what level. Multiple levels. So sorry. We just had a break in for that. That seems right. What, what's me. on the meme? What's on the internets today? <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so with that, it's time for our Bonko Party game break. Woo! <laughs> Someday I will learn how to play Bonko. It's not today. Right. None of us know how to play it for real. Oh, I don't. I've seen the women play it and I have, I have still have no idea what's happening. We were at a store, like a like a Hallmark card store recently, or was it a 99 cent store? But they had Bonko party, like the game. No way. Yeah. It was. <laughs> yeah. It was very confusing. Is this a 99 cent in everything? We have a special brand here in California. I think it was just 99 cents. Oh, okay. <laughs> I know I've known to frequent the halls at 99 cent in everything. And they always have Hershey on sale, by mm-hmm. the way. So today's bongo party game is called High Rolling. And I'm going to throw out names of Bravo celebrities, and the three of you will try to order them from lowest to highest reported net worth. So you'll put, like, uh, whatever like whatever you want to make. I guess, to keep it even, one should be who you think is the least wealthy, and five should be wealthiest. Or do you want to reverse it? One is wealthiest. Which, yeah. What does the expert say? What yeah. do you say? Catherine? I'm asking you what, what makes sense uh, for however you guys want to order it. So let's, uh, go ahead. One, one is the least wealthy? Yeah. One. Okay. okay so that one works. least wealthy, five wealthiest. And we're going to do three rounds so that hopefully everybody has a chance to win. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Some of these numbers surprised me. 
Um, some of them mm. I'm like, hmm. uh, we can totally debate what's been reported afterward if you'd like, uh, because we all know that wealthy people have lots of ways of hiding what kind of money they have. Um, okay. So in your first round, you have Caroline Manzo, Portia Williams, Erica Jane, Ramona Singer, and Nene Leakes. Okay, is everybody locked in? Yeah. Yes. Yep. Okay, do you want to go first, Catherine? Sure. So I put Portia as the least wealthy. Okay. And then Caroline Manzo, and then Erica Jane. And I really couldn't decide between Nini and Ramona, but I put Nini and then Ramona as the most wealthy. Okay. Jessica. But maybe it's Erica Jane. I don't know. Okay, I put Portia as the least wealthy. Nene Leakes, despite her being rich, bitch, I put number two. <laughs> then I put Caroline. I don't know why. That's just what my gut told me to do. Okay. Uh, Erica Jane and then Ramona Singer as the wealthiest. Max? We were almost identical. Oh. I went Portia number one. Nini, number two. I went Ramona, number three. Yeah. And then Caroline Manzo. And then I said Erica Jane was the wealthiest. She has all that Aaron Brockovich money. Mm -hmm. So the fascinating thing is when I went to the Celebrity Net Worth, they actually separated Erica's from Tom's. Well, that Mm. was tricky. I was going to ask such a question. So Tom is reportedly worth $30 Erica is not. (laughs) So here is the breakdown. If you could um, give yourself a check mark if you're in the right place and then report your score back. So least wealthy is Portia. Um, They report that she's worth $200,000. Second would be Erica, who's reportedly worth $5 million on her own. In third is Caroline Manzo, reportedly worth $12 million. In fourth is Nene Leakes, reportedly worth $14 million. And then Ramona Singer, reportedly worth $18 million. So what, uh, how many points did you get, Catherine? I got three points. I, al- I also have three points. Max? Oh, I got one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so this next round, um, <clears throat> I'm going to, it's going to be a little bit more, um, I think less variation. This is like the tightest round. So there's like. <laughs> okay. Okay. So uh, you can choose from Cynthia Bailey. Stassi Schroeder. What does that say that like Stassi is 30 something and Cynthia's had to work her, she's in her 50s now. <laughs> is that so, the same? I mean, yeah, it, all right. I mean, we're about to find out what it means in terms yeah. of net worth. Tom Sandoval. Two 30 somethings. Wow. Tamara Judge and Vicky. Well, I know how much Vicky 
allegedly <laughs> is worth because I've checked this. I double checked all these numbers this morning to get the most recent reportings. I will give like a tidbit to the listeners that Bethany Frankel is not on this list because actually no one is really able to reliably say what she's worth. So her number is like no one actually knows. Well, that's the mark of like being really rich. Yes. So uh, <laughs> she she like they don't they don't have much on her. Some people have reported that maybe Bethany is worth twenty five million, but they know that that's kind of BS because Skinny Girl is worth more than one million at this point. So uh, or more than sorry a hundred million. So mm-hmm. um, Bethany isn't going to appear anywhere for those of you. That we're maybe waiting for that. Okay. <laughs> Appreciate you. Are we locked in? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. What'd you get, Catherine? Um, I put least wealthy Tamara, and then Cynthia, and then Tom Sandoval, Stassi, and Vicky as the most wealthy. Okay. Jessica? I did Tamara's least wealthy, Stassi. Tom at three, I put Vicky at four, and Cynthia at five. And we're going to see what that means because she has so many diverse portfolios, but we'll see if I'm wrong. I put um, Stassi at one, mm-hmm. Sandoval at two, uh, Tamara at three, Cynthia at four, and Vicky at five. I think that was perfect. I did a perfect one. Let me think. Okay. It would have been Stassi, who's reportedly worth 300000 Then, oh, sorry. You're, uh, <sighs> you, you, you messed it up a little. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, Cynthia is actually number two. Interesting. Worth 500000 That's crazy. That's crazy. Tom Sandoval and Tamara Judge are both worth $2 million, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> well, the, he, Tom and Ariana lived in that very crappy apartment for a long time, so I guess they saved their money. I've heard the production paid for that. I cannot believe that they lived in an apartment. I don't know. I don't know if I believe where any of those people actually live. It's ridiculous. First and, of all, you all think it's actually a house and not somewhere a set somewhere, first of all. Well played. <laughs> and, and Vicky is reportedly worth seven million. Yeah, I know. Okay. So how did you guys score this time? I'm rolling with zero. Okay. <laughs> Catherine? So Tom and Tamara were tied? That's, yes. Okay. I got three then. Okay. But if they're tied, does that mean well, so it would have yeah. the order from? would have been one to five. It would have gone Stassi, Cynthia, Tamara, Tom, in either order, and then Vicky. Okay, yeah, so three. Okay. Oh, so I would have had three then. Yeah. Okay. Now, final round. This one is going to have Lisa Vanderpump. Andy Cohen, <laughs> Luann De Lesseps, Heather Dubrow, mm. and Jill Zarin. Do they mm. separate the Dubrow's income? 
No, I checked that. They're they they're considered the same lump sum. And so, mm-hmm. <laughs> this one's hard. I feel like all these people are very wealthy. Maybe not Luann. I don't know. Is there a lot of money in Cabaret? No. <laughs> <laughs> See, there's not as much money in TV as you would think. So the Andy one is complicated for me. It's hard, yeah. Are you guys locked or do you need another second? This mm-hmm. one this one is a kind of a tough one. I'm done, I think. Okay. You ready, Jessica? Mm-hmm. You ready, Max? Yep. And you ready, Catherine? Yes. Okay. What did you get? I put least wealthy Luann and then Jill, but I think that's probably very wrong. And then Andy, Heather, and Lisa as the most wealthy. Jessica? I had Luann, Jill. I had Heather and Lisa tied, and then I had Andy. But I still feel like Andy needs to be. Can I put Andy? Can I rearrange? Yeah, where do you want Andy? Luann, Jill, Andy, and then Heather and Lisa tied. Okay, Max? I have the exact same list as Catherine. Um, Luann. Luann, Jill, mm-hmm. Andy, Heather, or the Dubros, and then LVP. Okay, so get ready to mark your papers. We're going to kick off with Luann at $25 million. Oh. She doesn't have that though. She wow. doesn't. What's her? How? Because I, Bethany said that she had to front her 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 and Dennis had to front her a bunch of money. I'm sure she. That's yeah. why I said these numbers. Assets. Like, like I said, it, we're, she's clearly not the wealthiest <laughs> in this group. But like I said, we can debate all we want about I what's want, actually reported. I want the receipts, Luann. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think there's probably some false reporting on Luann. Um, allegedly 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 very alleged (laughs) okay i think she's richer than that frankly (laughs) uh next we have jill zarin who's reportedly worth 35 million Uh, the carpet king in new york didn't leave her all that much i guess wow (laughs) then let's see i just want to double check this one last time because I think, okay, yeah, Heather Dubrow is next, which I, I have to double check because I always think this is totally wrong because it's, again, they count her and Terry. So if you look up Terry Dubrow, they also say like he and his wife are like worth 40 million. Yeah. So um, I think that this is probably not true, but so the Dubrows are number three here. I'm going to go out on a limb and say all these figures are probably false. Yes, I'm sure. Um. <laughs> Then we're going to have Andy at 50 million. And uh, we're going to round it out with uh, LVP at 75 million. It's uh, all their money from restaurants? Well, it's all the times the kitchen is burned down, don't you know? Allegedly. Oh, right. Allegedly. Yeah. Okay. So allegedly. <laughs> I have no comments on wait, the, the, wait, fire, I need the you fire to redo this. So Luann, Jill, Heather, Andy, Andy, Lisa. and Lisa. Okay. So I think, Max, that was three for you. Yeah. 
And how many was that for you, Jessica? If you do indeed accept the fact that I put Andy under Heather Debro and Lisa, then I have four. Andy was second wealthiest. One. Right, so Luann, Jill. Oh, sorry, on my list. If you accept that I did Luann, Jill, then Andy, then Heather, and then Lisa above that. So Are that you should saying be three because you inversed. <laughs> yeah. You, okay, so yeah. three. Because at first I had Luan, uh, Lisa and Heather tied. Yeah. Whatever. I have four. No, that sounds like three. <laughs> no, it sounds like four. <laughs> okay, it'll be three. <laughs> <laughs> Heather DeBro was three, right? Tell me who was. Read them. Yeah. Read them numerically. But you switched them. I put Andy under Heather. But Andy needs to be above Heather. Heather. Oh, my. Yeah, this is... Math, me, no. You had four before you switched them. (laughs) Okay, and then Catherine? I had three. Okay, so in... Guess who's third? Third place today, we have Jessica with six. Oh. I'm not... I don't know (laughs) anything. Like, look, look. I know about being self-made. I don't know anything about some of this other stuff. However, Jessica was tied for first in round one with Catherine. And in round three, all three of you tied. So if we went by rounds. Jessica won. Jessica was doing really well. Thanks for giving me that bone. Appreciate Um, you. Actually, if we went by rounds, I think Catherine is like sweeping every time. Well, I would hope so because she's the guest expert. Yes. And um, (laughs) with seven points, we have Max in second place. That's respectable. And in first place, we have Catherine with nine points. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. That was a fun game. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. I'm glad you all enjoyed it. And it was, it's always fun to kind of internet dig on where they think these people's money is coming from. There's no way that those numbers are right. I don't think so. I don't think they're reporting that. Okay. So. <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> All of this is alleged. So, Catherine, <laughs> yeah. you write about the self-made man, the American dream, rags to riches kinds of stories as they relate to Milton Hershey. Can you unpack some more of the history of how these ideas go together for the listeners and explain about um, maybe explain why these ideas are so resilient in U.S. history, how they're time-specific, but also problematic. Sure. Um, so I think a lot of the rags to riches stories that come to mind when we hear the term are from, um, and Jessica will be the expert on this, but from the, the Gilded Age and the early progressive era in America, we think about Carnegie and Rockefeller and Milton Hershey falls in. Um, to those in with those people as well um and these ideas are really resilient in the american psyche um because they're evidence that anyone can become exceedingly wealthy um the narratives of so-called self-made men privilege honesty and hard work they discourage dependence um literature for you know a long time has fetishized these stories and since the advent of film and television stories of the underdog are really popular they celebrate success um, and the notion of the American dream makes it clear that upward mobility is uh, 
possible for everyone, regardless of what class they're born into, even though, you know, as we know, even um, at any point in American history, this has never been true. Um, but that idea still persists. Um, the idea has roots also in frontier life in early America. We can see uh, references to um, ideas surrounding social mobility, personal aspirations uh, in the writing of uh, people like Alexis de Tocqueville in the, thir- in the 1830s, um, Frederick Jackson Turner later in the 19th century. And the idea of what the American dream is has changed significantly over time. For uh, for some people, it's meant uh, the freedom to make individual choices. It's meant access to education, um, home ownership. The notion of the American dream is a little different than the other two, but it, it they all fit together. Um, and this notion of the American dream is, is problematic because it implies that hard work and good character ultimately lead to success and that there are no systemic obstacles in this path. Uh, The notion of the self-made man reinforces the idea that individuals are singularly responsible for their success. uh, And rags to riches stories reinforce the fact that the American dream is truly possible for anyone because if it's possible for people who were born into poverty, then it must be possible for everyone. And it doesn't acknowledge that different classes of people um, throughout American history have had truly significant barriers to these possibilities. Um, It's also problematic. uh, Oh, sorry. No, you go ahead. Could you tell us a little bit about how the American dream would also be different for people um, in the 1880s, 1890s than what it is like when you talk in, in your research about Hershey, Pennsylvania by the 1970s? Um, Well, I talk a little in my work, well, not even a little, there's the early part, like my work spans the entire 20th century history of, I, I debated a little in the early stages of the project, where to start and end it. And at the end of the day, I ended up coming to looking at the, the first hundred years of the Hershey company. So um, in the the early years of Hershey, um, the American dream means this sort of middle class life that uh, that Hershey really does provide for a lot of people who had been um, had been dairy farmers in that central Pennsylvania region, or they had been. Uh, they had been coal workers in other parts of Pennsylvania and they, as the factory expands and, and the town needs more and more workers, it does draw from, from these, uh, these areas. And it also draws um, migrants from, from Italy in particular to work in the stone quarry that's near the town. And they are essentially building the infrastructure of the town. And um, there's a lot of xenophobia in the early uh First, first three decades, three or four decades of Hershey's history um, before these uh, Italian migrants and children of, of migrants sort of become part of the fabric of Hershey. Um, there's a, a lot of xenophobia. And so the American dream for these new migrants is very different from uh, farmers in the region who are just coming to Hershey for um, a, a 
different life than what they have, but some, because it offers sort of more education, more opportunity for education for their children, um, a more stable living, whereas uh, people coming from Italy are entering into a whole different life. And, and that is provided because of this industrialization that's happening in the area. Later on, it means very different things. Um, as Hershey transforms throughout the 20th century, um, and it it has it becomes less dependent on the Hershey chocolate factories for employment. Uh, there's a big medical center that opens up, um, and it, it later Hershey becomes a bedroom community of Harrisburg. So then it represents more of like this sort of suburban America post-war um, ideal that that then sort of embodies the American dream. It's home ownership. It's it's living in a sort of you know peaceful community outside the one you work in. Great. I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, no, excellent. <laughs> excellent, <you>. excellent. <laughs> so you know that there's this recurrent theme on Bravo where housewives want to be known as an entrepreneur and owner of a product rather <laughs> than just a product spokesperson. So can you use, for example, Karen Huger's La Dame Perfume? I almost said La Dame Parfume. (laughs) La Dame Perfume drama as an example to talk to us about this phenomenon and what it means. And and then follow up, why have some brands succeeded and others have not? Sure. Um, So the La Dame saga has been very interesting and very petty, um, which makes it great for television. (laughs) Sometimes I, over the course of this, I've thought, okay, this is enough. What we don't need to hear any more about Ladam. But the Giselle Bryant is so so shady and so great. Uh, it, she always makes me laugh. And so then I'm like, okay, I do need to. I do need to see where this Ladam thing is going. Um, and it, it, that is, I credit Giselle almost entirely with that, um, with moving the storyline along. Um, but there's a long history in the United States of celebrity spokespeople in advertising. Um, it really takes off in the 1950s when American consumers are watching more TV in their homes. And in the ensuing decades, um, celebrity endorsements of products are more and more common. Uh, and this is especially true for beauty companies and perfumes. And we can think about like Elizabeth Taylor in the 90s. And since then, you know, all these pop stars, Britney Spears, Jennifer Lopez, um, with signature fragrances for various companies. But the for the ladies of Potomac, this being having a signature fragrance or being the face of a fragrance is just it's not enough. Um, and they are very concerned with whether Karen owns this company, how much stake she has in the company. Or is she just the face of the company, which is which is somehow debasing, um, regardless of how much money she may or may not be making from this perfume that may or may not exist? Um, the anticipation of Karen's perfume becomes like a significant storyline uh, for I think two seasons, which seems insane. But part of this is entangled in that whole mess of the women thinking that Karen's broke and she doesn't actually live in that big house. Uh, and ultimately it goes back to this idea of being self-made. And if you're just the face of a product, you didn't make that. Um, and, and it shows how important, um, that really is being self-made in the American imagination. Entrepreneurship is central to the rags to riches stories of famous 
American business people like Hershey, like Carnegie, um, you know, in the modern era, like, um, I don't know, I can't even, oh, the, the woman, um, I don't remember her name, but who, who founded Nasty Gal um, Fashion. Like, it's sort of, it's just the entrepreneurship element is so important. And so Karen's ownership of the company is central to whether or not she can claim that title of being self-made. Regardless of how much money she has, is she self-made? Does she own this? Is so important. Um, and in terms of why some brands succeed and others don't, that's a hard question. And I'm not like a branding or marketing expert, but in terms of housewives brands, my take on it is that I think there's clearly some products that housewives are backing or creating that are more useful than others and that there's actually more of a market for. Um, so something like skinny girl or bedroom candy um, seems to have its place and, you know, be doing well. Um, and people like Candy Burris and Bethany Frankel just seem to have a little more business savvy than some of the other women. They probably surround themselves with, smart people, people who are experts in what they're doing. They're not just trying to make it themselves. Um, and, and they're really good at establishing personal brands and making viewers like relate to them and that adding to the success of their product. Um, they and certainly they seem to have be... less insurance scams <laughs> than LVP <laughs> and Ken Todd, allegedly. <laughs> hey man, that car hit their restaurant. <laughs> Not the, the rest other yeah. did not hit the Ferrari. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, but also, I think some of the Housewives products seem to be just sort of simply like personal vanity projects. Like I would put uh, like Sonia's toaster oven and She by Sheree in that category. And vanity projects are a lot of fun to watch, um, but they're not great brands or businesses. Um, Can I just yeah. say that my favorite vanity project, I think, has been Asa's Diamond Water. Oh, oh yes. yes. I forgot about that. Like, it's oh, just so ridiculous. It's like, to me, it's so bravo that, like, she wanted yes. people and to buy so water LA. with diamonds. That is so L.A., too. Mm-hmm. So L.A., yeah. Oh, I forgot about that. That's a good one. I follow us on Instagram. So the caftans are still going. You know, she's still doing ads for that. No one has seen or heard of the diamond water since we watched it on on television. I mean, it just hasn't. Um, Let me say this about products. This is, let me weigh in on consumerism. Winced at BravoCon, I decided to buy a Cynthia Bailey purse. It was a cross body bag and I said I'm not gonna buy this but the person who was selling it was just so delightful I said sure why not I deserve this and I looked at it and said "Mm, I don't know is it cheap I don't know but I've taken it everywhere I've traveled in the last two months and it still looks and it's a white purse and it still looks white Mm -hmm. and crisp and sharp that's amazing yeah I'm pretty impressed with it we should do a shout out to Cynthia Bailey yes shout out to Cynthia Bailey I love Cynthia Bailey I'll also say she's like, my favorite housewife. I'm like oh, I love Cynthia Bailey. I'll also say like she and Portia are good. I love both of them. If any housewife wants to send us their product, Ooh. I'm here for it. We will promote it. We, we can advertise so yeah. the product. I, I I spent a good three hours one night trying to find a bottle of Ramona's Pinot Grigio. 
could not find anywhere. It wasn't on eBay. It wasn't anywhere. Um, what are some of your favorite things you've learned from your research that most people wouldn't know about the history of chocolate, Milton Hershey, uh, or American <laughs> consumer practices around chocolate? Um, one of the interesting aspects of Hershey's history that's probably lesser known is, um, even though like, once you hear about it, you're like, how is that not known? Um, is that Milton Hershey during the first world war established sugar plantations in Cuba, um, in like East of Havana, uh, <laughs> as a way of dealing with. I wish you could see Jessica and Max pause. and I, I'll, oh my God. Pause. Oh my goodness. Pause. Pause, 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 pause. Okay, we do know there's differing definitions of plantations, but I really did think, well, I guess you have the plantations in Hawaii too. So let me back up. But I had not no idea that Hershey went to Cuba. Yeah. Um thousands of acres of uh sugarcane fields, three separate sugar mills. Um they the company built a town um a, a fancy hotel that executives and tourists would, could stay in. Um, they even had, um, oh, what's it called? The, the United Fruit Company's uh, Great White Fleet, like that would visit, uh, go through the Panama Canal, canal visit uh, banana plantations and in like Costa Rica or, or places like that. They had a stop in Havana and it featured like a, a shore trip to walk through the, the mill in um, Central Hershey, uh, which is what they called the, the town. Um, they even, the company published promotional material that likened it to the Pennsylvania town, calling them sister cities. Uh, and they sourced sugar almost exclusively from Cuba, from their own um, properties until uh, just after the Second World War when Milton Hershey died. And the, the history of Hershey's uh, role in Amer this American imperial expansion is is really fascinating, and I'm hoping to move the book in a like more transnational direction, and if it ever happens, and take a more in depth look at this period of Hershey's history. It's really fascinating. So, where did they go after the Cuban Revolution? Then, well, they didn't. They were out before the revolution, so oh, they okay. didn't have to. They sold all the all the uh, the assets to um, the. Cuban, Cuban American Sugar Company. I think that's what it was called. And so then, so this is why I don't know if you all have heard of the Hershey, uh, the Milton Hershey School. Some people have and some people haven't. But what happened was they bought the the plantations and mills and all of that land in uh, 1916. And uh, Milton Hershey didn't want to, it was originally in the Hershey Estates Holdings, which took care of all non-chocolate operations in town. So like garbage removal, snow removal, all that kind of stuff. And they put it in there, but then realized that if it was there, they would have to pay taxes on it. So then they moved all of that to the, which at the time was called the Hershey Industrial School, and it was a charity. So they could put that money in there. And so, or put those assets in there. And when they sold the Cuban assets, that was, um, that enriched the school beyond what and it was already very rich. But so now the, the Milton Hershey school today serves like, uh, I don't know if it's grade one through 12 or if it starts even earlier than that, but it's still a, a school that serves sort of um, low income students from mainly the like mid Atlantic area, but 
people from all over the, the country can apply. And now that school is actually like their endowment is on par with schools like Columbia and Stanford, Penn. Wow. So it's, it's crazy. And all that money came from the, the wealth that they had in Cuba. Yikes. Wow. <laughs> Did you have any other uh, like favorite th- like tidbits about um, history of chocolate in the U.S., consumer practices, or Hershey? Because I don't know how many more of your, like, whoa moments. Like, I feel like we're all in shock over here. <laughs> let, let me also say this about our whoa moments. Uh, you know, these are great, but I'm sure you've already gotten the advice of don't give it all away, leave yeah. some for the book. Yeah, so yeah. leave some for the book. Do you know, um, I'm really interested, I don't know if you know, how much chocolate do Americans eat? Oh, a lot. I came across the number a while ago, but I can't remember it, but it's a lot. Yeah. Uh, I, I, will, I wish I could remember the figure, but yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> I, I would imagine it's it's a big number per capita per year. Oh my goodness, mm-hmm. this has been amazing. So, it's time for Bravo News Update. Yay. Okay, so before I actually do the news. Um, uh, before we actually get to the news, we have an answer. Americans consume 2.8 billion pounds of chocolate each year. Whoa. Or over 11 pounds per person. Holy cow. (laughs) Wow. Does that sound right to you? Yes, that sounds... The 11 11 pounds per person, I remember that now, now that you say it. That's, yeah. Added added to that, Americans eat an average of 22 pounds of candy each year. Split almost equally between candy and chocolate. Wow. Oh, so then it's another 11 pounds of candy. <laughs> just so, sugar. Wow. Of ju- yeah. Before you count your soda. That's before you even get to cereal, too. <laughs> yeah. Wow. All right. <laughs> okay. So since we just had a new season of Vanderpump Rules air, I figured that part of Bravo News today could be um, you, Catherine, weighing in as a Pump Rules fan on what you want to see in terms of predictions for the season, hopes, like, what are what are you thinking at the start of season eight? Um, I really, or I just hope it's a fun season. That's what I've always loved about Vanderpump Rules. The last season was maybe not as much, like, fun, but it's always, a, it's always fun to watch. I always enjoy it. Um, I'll probably watch the first episode of this season later tonight. Um, but I'm curious to see how the new people fit in. I'm excited. There's been sort of uh, mixed feelings about whether there should be new people or not, but I'm really excited about the new people. I'm hoping that, um, that they'll, that it'll, they'll fit in well with the, with the show. I'm interested to see Lisa's role. Like now that she's not going to be on, um, Real Housewives of Beverly Hills anymore. I'm curious to see if she'll take more of a role on Vanderpump Rules or if her role will kind of be the same as it's been for a while. Um, I guess it's Jackson and Brittany's wedding this season. So I don't know if I, you know, I'm that interested in their wedding. Jax is such an insufferable bridezilla. (laughs) Yeah, well. Without spoiling anything. Like, he's (laughs) awful. Well, I can see that. That makes a lot of sense to me. I just like love the part in point. the in the preview where you see 
Britney in like uh, a fake wedding dress, like put her head down and cry on pizza boxes. That to me it's says so, everything you need to know about it's VPR. So Vanderpump rules. It's very Vanderpump rules. <laughs> it wasn't enough that she put her head down on the table. It had to be on a pizza box. <laughs> <laughs> so our first tidbit of Bravo news today actually comes um, as Vanderpump rules adjacent. So do you guys remember who Brecken Meyer is? Wasn't no. he in? Um, Road trip. He's in road trip. He was in Clueless. He was in Rat Race. Um, does this okay. ring a bell? Brecken Meyer. Who was he in Clueless? He was Alicia Silverstone's like soon to be boyfriend. Okay, got it. Right, the skateboarder. No, oh, no, okay. no. Um, Brittany Murphy's boyfriend. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know. Okay. About yeah, and he was the guy in road trip trying to like prevent the tape from getting to the girlfriend. Yeah. Got it. Right. Okay. Breckenmeyer. So Breckenmeyer bought the house that was for sale next door to Tom and Ariana. They are now neighbors. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, except he had to pay slightly more for his house. They paid two million and some change. He paid two point two million um, for the same exact house with the same exact floor plan and pool in the backyard. <laughs> Why did he have to pay for okay. I don't know. I think it's just, you know, the way that the housing market moves around. So there might have been capital improvements. He Yeah, so he paid just slightly more for the same exact house. Um, and as Stassi Schroeder points out, um, the Tom and Ariana's house, Jackson and Brittany's house, and Katie and Schwartz's house all look exactly the same from the outside. You're really confused about which house you're pulling up to. So... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so that's the first bit. And now Breckenmeyer's house is exactly the same. I know. Uh, so, you know, it, it remains to be seen if we'll get Breckenmeyer in the Vanderpump Rules universe. That would be interesting. <laughs> Maybe he can do a movie with Randall and Lala. Oh. <laughs> uh, the second Whoa. piece of news. Apparently there is... Big, big drama between Denise Richards and Brandy Glanville. Yeah. Because I heard that. they've had a six month affair. Brandy was under the impression that Denise was in an open marriage. And so when it came up, it turned out that uh, it's really unclear if Denise is in an open marriage or not. But Aaron had no idea any of this was happening. And so Denise did not go to the reunion for Beverly Hills. Oh. So there's that. It was not just like a one time. It was like a six month relationship on the side. I know. You think, you think he was like, you got to shut down housewives. Like you can't do that anymore. Or do you think she's embarrassed and she didn't want the Oh, questions? that's possible too. I mean, she was married to Charlie Sheen. So how, do we really how think, worse could it be? I feel like this is not something that's going to embarrass her. If she's embarrassed, it's because Aaron is probably really upset because he was unaware. Or they're going to well, bring Brandy. Well, her kids are old enough that they would read about it too, right? She also seems to get some um, Hallmark contracts. And I don't know if Hallmark Ooh. is okay. Oh, right. Right, because, because Bravo yeah. is like not going to care about it. But her Hallmark holiday movies and like you know right. seasonal work is probably going to care if she has tabloid news about her 
romance. They apparently started their relationship like right at the open of 2019. So like only like a couple months after her and Aaron married in the fall. Wow. Yeah. I have so many questions that go back so, so further back. Now looking at, I mean, is Brandy fluid? Is that what she's saying? Um, let's look at her relationship with Ken and Lisa. I well, have Kelly so many Dodd got now. on Twitter and was like, well, I've spent the night with Brandy and she didn't come on to me. <laughs> so it was a very Kelly Dodd. Uh, yeah. But um, yeah. So six month relationship. Apparently this aftermath drama is all on the new season of Beverly Hills. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Yes. I'm here for it. Yeah. Brandy is going to get her full-time diamond back, I'm guessing. Yeah. <laughs> I hope I like watching Brandy. She's fun to watch. She's good TV. My I head like, just yeah. hurt a little bit, but she's good TV. <laughs> I like watching yeah. her annoy Kyle a lot. I like watching Kyle get annoyed and flabbergasted. Kyle is funny I, when she's annoyed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh before we leave Bravo news because I feel like it's it's fair game. There seems to be a lot of debate online right now about what is going to happen to Dallas or what should be happening to Dallas. Some people online are talking about how Dallas won't be renewed at all. Others are saying that they can renew it with everybody, but um, Brandy and Leanne. So any feelings? Um, I like Dallas. I, it's not my, like if it went away, I probably, wouldn't end up really missing it but if it's there i'm definitely gonna watch it um i do like stephanie holman um i i think that things online this this season that people didn't like carrie brittingham they thought but i liked her i thought she seemed fun and that if she had another season that might be fun i kind Um, of wonder how many people who are saying they don't like carrie there's also like a, or like a race issue or like maybe like yeah. a phobia going on behind yeah. their feelings about Carrie. That's definitely possible. And I don't know. Leanne is always, I've never enjoyed Leanne. I don't find her fun. I don't find her interesting. Um, I agree. You know, I tried I, to give her a shot drama, but yeah, she brings drama, but it's not the kind of drama that I really am here for. I would not miss Leanne at all. So, you know, every show, they're looking at me like I'm supposed to have an answer. You know, every Housewives (laughs) franchise has its own distinct personality, as we've said before and Andy has said. And maybe I just am not with the Dallas personality. Maybe I just Mm -hmm. can't. It just... Oh, I am? No, I'm not not saying... I'm just saying that I just... Yeah, I'm kind of like um, you, Catherine. If if it's on, I'll watch it. If it doesn't come back, uh. so yeah. let's see what they do. I think they have a great time slot. That's what I got mm-hmm. for you. Is there another city in the South that they could? Uh, a Real Housewives of like Phoenix or Scottsdale would probably be really fascinating. That would be good. Oh yeah, and yeah, Orleans, that would be a but, different vibe. But. I feel like Scott the New Orleans now is like where they've d- done Southern Charm New Orleans, but oh, I mean, right. I I kind of miss Miami still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like Miami. I mean, going back to this Arizona vibe, I feel like the Real Housewives of Salt Lake City 
a shout out to my hometown. I feel like that's going to be the closest we get to Phoenix because I know the income bracket they're taking people from to do this show, right? Like everyone, they're supposed to have money, Mm -hmm. but some of these people have money, money. Um, Right. So it's, so I think we're going to get a similar kind of vibe. Like it's some people live in park city, which is the tourist area. Um, They only really get together for social engagements, high end social engagements, so I think without having Phoenix on the table, we're going to get a lot of that um, kind of West <laughs> rugged, rugged individualism in the West since we've been talking mm. about self-made people. I would still mm-hmm. love a, like a Real Housewives of San Francisco or Seattle. Just get like, oh, that'd get, be like great. really crunchy women yelling at each other, right? <laughs> like Real you did not recycle that properly, right? Like it's... But like, you know, and Max and I lived in San Francisco for a long time. So both this like combination of like crunchiness, but like crunchy people who really care about their property value. It's, it's, it's fascinating. So I would watch that. Yeah. So with that, Catherine, tell us what's next for you and what you want people to know about your upcoming work. How can they get in touch with you if they want to learn more? Um, well, it's a little uncertain for me right now. My dissertation defense. It was actually just formally scheduled today. So it's coming up at the end of February. Congratulations. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. I'm on the job market right now, which has been, uh, you know, not for the week of heart, not for the week of heart. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I'm thinking right now, I'm thinking about how this project moves forward as a book, what kind of research I'll be taking on next. Uh, I'm really interested in the history of capitalism and food history and consumer culture. So it'll be something in that vein. Um, and people can reach me at KatherineKunar.com. Thank you. Um, I am on so Twitter, much. but I don't really tweet. I just, uh, I just lurk. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here with us today. This was wonderful. I had a great time. I think my co-host did too. I feel yes. like I, I learned mm-hmm. a lot. Today. I'm irritated that I'm fasting <laughs> from sugar, though, because uh. <laughs> a Coke and a Hershey bar, like, what else do you need in America? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that is it. Sorry. I had a wonderful time. This was a lot of fun. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. As always, you can find us at historiansonhousewives.com, where you can propose your own episode topic, ask us questions, and send us feedback. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Historians H. And don't forget that you can like and review the podcast on your podcast platform. Thank you, Catherine Kunar. This show was brought to you with the support by Barbara and Mark Spear, Saddleback Community College, Christina Hinkle, Christina Gambercore, Jed Merlaski, Pete Murray, Yvonne Bellardes, Cody Baker, Molly Callahan, Dr. Joaquin Galarza, Courtney Crow, Lara Loper, Kim Bettendorf, and Luis Acio de Dios. And remember, scholars do bravo too. And Jill? Uh, Jill Zarin, well, I mean, Bobby Zarin is dead, so. Yeah, but Jill was the fifth one. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 Jill's the last. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for pointing out that Bobby is dead. <laughs> Jill, if you're listening out there, your husband's dead. I probably could have said that more gently. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. Don't worry, I'm going to cut that out. (laughs) 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.